0: Well, everybody, and welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. I hope you had a wonderful, very Merry Christmas. And here we are looking to the new year. In fact, this is my final message to you before the new year. And I want you to be encouraged with this because we're going to be talking about today who is Jesus. After all, we just had Christmas and we celebrated his birth. And now we really just need to talk about who is Jesus. Jesus, because there's a lot of controversy out there. There's a lot of mixed opinions about who Jesus Christ is. And this is a critical uh, point, a, a critical foundation for you. As you launch off into the new year, you need to know who Jesus Christ really is. And if you're listening right now and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is my prayer and hope right now that as you listen to these words, you will be utterly convicted in your soul to give your life to Jesus. Let me start off with this. I don't know For those of you who are listening right now, if you're into football, but I've enjoyed watching professional football for many, many years. In fact, I became a Denver Broncos fan in 1984, and that's been painful, a lot of ups and downs in that. But I've been a devoted fan ever since I was eight years of age. And if I were to rattle off some of my favorite childhood players, some of you may recognize the names, but many of you may not. Now I, I'm, I was such a fan. I actually have the glass bottle of orange crush that is still fi- filled up with the orange crush soda, and it's signed by Carl Mecklenburg. Okay, those, those are the kind of players that I, I have autographs from. You know, Randy Gratishar, many others. So I I love to follow on my Denver Broncos. Lately, it's been a little tough, but. You know, we still cheer them on nonetheless. But if I were to rattle off all these names, you probably wouldn't know who they are. In fact, they may be just yesterday's news, unfortunately. You know, today it's all about the bigger, stronger, quicker, younger athletes and and who's replaced those of yesteryears. And that's the reality of the game. So when it comes to every form of sports and entertainment, we see this re- revolving door, if you will. Celebrity is fleeting. It's out with the old, in with the new. But there's one name that's defied all of that. There's one exception to this rule. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has defied human history for 2,000 years. He's the most talked about person in the world. There's been more written about Jesus than anyone else in the world. There's more songs sung about Jesus than anyone else in the world. There's more movies that have been made about Jesus than anyone else in the world. And we're left only then with this conclusion that man's fame is fleeting, but Christ's fame is forever. Did you know that there are 256 names that are given in the Bible for Jesus Christ? And I suppose that's because he was infinitely beyond any one name could express. Let's start off with Emmanuel, for example. We've been talking about God with us and the hope that we have because of God with us. And again, the word Emmanuel, the proper name that that is and what it represents. The E is from the Greek and the I is from the Hebrew, so you may see that that difference there of Emmanuel with an E and Emmanuel with an I. Uh, But he's also called Christ and Lord, Messiah, Master, Logos, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, Lamb of God, New Adam, Second Adam, Last Adam, Light of the World, King of the Jews, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Holy One, Yeshua. But there's something about the name of Jesus. In fact, we turn to Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 10. Here's what we read. And therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Jesus means in Hebrew God Saves—it's the proper name for Jesus. This, where the English language originates, then is from this Latin and Greek form of Isus, which is a rendition of the Hebrew Yeshua, and which has variants from Joshua or Yeshua. Okay, so let me try to clear up some of the mystery here. There's a, there's this viable attempt by many, to discredit the English translation of the Bible, as though there is this great deal of context that's missing, and as a result, we're blinded, and we can't trust our Bible. And I have to assure you that that perspective is, is not accurate. You can trust that the God of heaven has ensured that you have the truth. You see, God is the author of language. In Genesis chapter 11, he separated the people groups and the languages, and after many years, we see a number of dialects, that have changed and expanded as a result. And and today there's some 7,100 languages in 195 countries. But the reason for the controversy of the English language, and particularly the J, is because the J was not added to the alphabet until 1524 A.D., so people have made the claim that the proper noun Jesus is incorrect due to the letter J not being added it, until far later in fact being less than 500 years old but Jesus's name in Hebrew is Yeshua or Yeshu which is a derivative of Yeshua or Joshua in the English now, Hebrew, though, was a minority language when Christ was born. In fact, the people spoke Koine Greek and Aramaic at that time. In fact, the Old Testament was translated into Greek 130 years before Christ was even born. So the entire New Testament was written in Greek. They already had the entire Old Testament in Greek. So in Greek, Jesus' name was Yesus or Isus which as you could see from the particular dialect of Jesus, and as you saw christianity spread into northern europe the j become it would become more predominant so yesus became jesus or jesus as we would have it today so you know this really reminds me of a similar situation that i have uh, been engaged in and been involved in when I've traveled around the world and have served as a missionary, my name is John Michael. But in Mexico, it was Juan Miguel. I actually like that better. I think it has a little more pizzazz to it, you know, Juan Miguel. Uh, but in the Greek, it would be Ioannes or Johannan or Jan in Hebrew. Uh, does that change who I am? I mean, no. And likewise, the name of Jesus Christ is above all names, no matter what language it's spoken in. In fact, you can go to the Arabic-speaking nations, we'll call him Isa al-Masih. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua HaMashiach. In the Greek, it's Jesus Christos. Or in the English, it's Jesus Christ. Regardless of which of those languages you speak, His name is still above all names. In fact, God told Mary, through the angel messenger Gabriel, to name His son Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, 31 to 33, we read, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, we're going to answer this most important question here in this study. Who is Jesus. It means everything. He's not just the founder of Christianity. He is Christianity. In fact, we're told that he is the chief cornerstone of all that we believe, because if he is not who he says he was, then the Bible is lies. But if he is who he says he was, then the Bible is all truth. It is the infallible word of God. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 4, Verses 10 to 12, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved there's no other name no one else can save you why do you need salvation well because sin corrupted and perfect this perfect world that God created it corrupted it and as a result death entered the world and now mortality cannot inherit immortality without a savior you go to Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to 17 or first Corinthians 15 45 to 57. But if we turn back to Romans 8, 9 to 11, here's what we read. If Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, back in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that mortality cannot inherit immortality, cannot put on immortality. See, this is why we need a Savior, because we are destined for destruction and only to face the Judgment and the consequences thereof, if we don't have a kinsman redeemer, if we don't have a savior. So, here scripturally, we see that this question is asked and answered in Matthew chapter 16 of Who is Jesus? Again, if you're just tuning in, the reason why this is so important to understand is we're looking now into 2019, that this is the solid foundation upon which you will stand of this great question. Who is Jesus? I believe it will totally define your 2019. If you were standing on the solid rock and a firm reliance on Jesus Christ, who is Lord, both God in flesh and fully man, both God and man in one. So here's what scriptures tell us. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and 18. If you go back and read that, you'll see of what is occurring there in this pivotal section is Jesus Christ says, who does the son, who who do people say that I am? The son of man, who who do they say that I am? He takes them to Caesarea Philippi specifically as he asks them this question. And and, and this is a critical place for him to do this at. Caesarea Philippi is located 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee at the base of Mount Hermon. It's one of the many springs that feed the Jordan River. And here is what was known as Baal, or Baal Hermon, or Baal God, uh, Gad, Baal, Baal Gad, depending on uh, the phonetics there, the, the dialect you're using. It was also known as Panias or Banias, uh, later known as Bunias, but at the time known as Panias. And the reason why is because they used to worship the god Pan there, lower G, and this particular section, this area where they worshipped Pan, they also would build a temple unto Zeus, and they worshipped Zeus there. There was this huge cave directly behind this particular structure where water would flow up from it, and it lo- they looked down, and it looked like there was no bottom to it. And it was called the Gates of Hell. So, Christ takes his disciples to this place to ask them this pivotal question of who people say that he is, and ultimately to seek who they think he is. And in this particular area of all places, is where Satan is being worshipped. In fact, it wasn't just there. It was all around the region of this border area of Israel. And we know that Zeus was the predominant figure worshipped there. And Zeus has his roots from Baal. And Baal was called Satan by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. Now, Caesarea Philippi is located around uh, about four hours from Tyre. And it's at Tyre where God calls on Jesus, the Son of Man, to take up lamentation of the king of Tyre, and to rebuke Satan who's empowering him in Ezekiel chapter 28. So of all places that Jesus could have gone, here is where he takes them and tells them that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church or this truth of who he is, that he is the son of the living God. And this particular area is where they worshiped Satan predominantly, and, and now he is showing them This is what the world is worshiping in their foolishness, is if they need to make a decision, asking them, who do you say that I am? Because you can choose the false gods of the world that lead only to the gates of hell, or you can choose me, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And then we see six days later in Matthew chapter 17, he takes just a few of them, Peter, James, and John, up to this mount, and we believe it's Mount Hermon, where he is transfigured before their eyes. To show them that this is the Son of Man who is also the Son of God. Now, as he calls himself the Son of Man in this section, some have thought that Jesus was referencing his humanity. And, and then the Son of God then is speaking of his deity. But the Son of Man carries with it both the presence of the Messiah who would come by way of the tribe of Judah with divine authority through even to the seed, from the seed of Adam. So from Adam through Judah, from the, so the throne of King David, all of this carries with it a great, signif- it signifies a great authority. It's beyond what we can really imagine as we look to this of of why he would use this title, Son of Man. you got to remember that Jacob... Israel when he blessed his sons in Genesis chapter 49 verses 8 to 12 he would tell Judah specifically that the scepter would come by way through him never to pass and that on a donkey he would be tied to the vine that was his blessing and what what Judah probably didn't understand is this was a prophetic statement of the coming messiah Judah had been chosen by God to deliver the people through the promised land in Judges chapter 1, verse 2. This was not the firstborn. And so Judah was specifically chosen by God. Even today, all of the tribes of Israel are not Identified except for one, the Jews. And they're one of 12, I actually 13 when you include Ephraim and Manasseh. But King David would then come through the line of Judah as well, and so would the Messiah, according to many prophecies such as 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, 17 verses 11 to 13, Psalm 110, and many others. So the term son of man carried a great deal of weight. The people understood what it meant. It implied that he was of the seed of Adam and of God through the line of Judah. The one with this title, the one who would use the title son of man, would be claiming that he was before the sons of Judah, that he was the Messiah. In fact, we look to Matthew chapter 12, verses 7-8. We read, but if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that's Matthew chapter 12, verses three to eight. Uh, it's actually seven, to eight right there. And you look to this and you go, wait a minute. So he's evoking the title Son of Man, and that he's Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that means that he's equating himself with God. Because who was the Lord of the Sabbath? When was the Sabbath established? It was, in, it was instituted and set aside at creation. And that was something that God did. And in fact, they would try just six verses later, they said that they would plot to destroy Jesus because he made such a claim. So the Son of Man is an expression that appears 81 times in the Koine Greek. In the four Gospels, we see it 30 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 25 times in Luke, and 12 times in John. And this was in direct fulfillment of prophecies. We even turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Here's what we read of this Son of Man. Here's what it says. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. You see that prophecy there of the Son of Man, this ancient of days. It would be His dominion, His glory, His kingdom that would never fade away. We see that repeated in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12-13 to 13 of Jesus Christ. So the Son of Man is the scepter of Judah. Jesus Christ our Lord, the rightful heir and ruler according to Genesis 49-10. This is referenced in Hebrews chapter 1, that he is the son of man, the, i.e. the son of God, who is elevated above all. And then he says in verse 8 that your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You see, all of these prophecies pointed to Jesus Christ, who would evoke the title of son of man and son of God. And they would be synonymous. And you go back to Matthew 16, Jesus then poses the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And to which they respond, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So here they're telling him that the people think that, that you're one of these greats, that you're you know someone like John the Baptist or Elijah, resurrected Jeremiah perhaps, maybe one of the resurrected prophets, they they ultimately all the people as they saw these marvelous things that he was doing they were looking for a political leader who would free the Jewish people from the tyranny of the Roman rule and Jesus simply didn't meet those expectations therefore they were confused about his identity now here's someone who's born of a of a peasant woman in a lowly stable raised in an obscure village trained as a carpenter at 30 years of age he starts his His ministry, which, by the way, 30 years of age is very significant because Joseph was 30 years of age when he became the second in command over Egypt. Priests were 30 years old when they entered into service before God at the tabernacle, and David became king of Israel at 30 years of age. Ezekiel was appointed as a prophet of God at 30 years of age, and it was Ezekiel who will teach on the kingdom under Jesus' rule. So here we have Jesus at 30 years of age. He now has a motley crew of fishermen, tax collectors, even reaching out to people like prostitutes, the straight people, uh, individuals that were despised or looked down upon in the public square. Jesus was reaching out to these and they followed him. Even the woman at the well, when she goes back to her people and she's testifying about Jesus, it was by her testimony that many were saved as a result You see, Jesus, he never went to college. He never held an office. He never wrote a book. He never put his foot inside a big city or government center. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place of his birth. And he never did any of the things that the people were looking for to be the king. And even today, people still question who he is. In fact, Mormons will teach that Jesus is a man who achieved great things. They believe that he was a pre-existent spirit. But again, they believe that about everyone. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a created being who was given the status of second in command. The Way International will teach that Jesus that his life, his existence, began at conception. Uh, The Muslims will teach that Jesus is just a prophet, a a messenger of God that will ultimately point the way to the prophet Muhammad and unto Allah. Uh, And then we have the Unitarians who teach that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but none of them will claim that He is the Son of God, both God and man, and and that He is the rightful heir and ruler of this world, according to Revelation chapter 5. That He's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, And he is what the scriptures call the second Adam, the rightful heir, the kinsman redeemer. That he's the one who will restore all things. He is the one who will give the inheritance to all of the people. None of their teachings align with scripture. That's why they write all these additional books to support their far-fetched perspectives on Christ. And we're told to avoid those false teachings according to Matthew chapter 7 and 24 and 2 Peter chapter 2 and 1 John 4 amongst many others including 2 Timothy 4. So scripture is quite clear to avoid those lies and the Bible is quite clear then on who Jesus is Here's what he says Jesus called himself the Messiah to a woman in John chapter 4 verses 25 to 26. He said that he existed before Abraham and called himself I am in John 8:58. That was a big deal because those are the two words that God used of himself. He called himself the I am in Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 to 15. He said that he and the father were one in John chapter 10, verse 30, to which the Jews replied, you a mere man claim to be God in verse 33. So they knew what he was saying. He called God his father. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49. And Simeon called Jesus God's salvation for all people. In Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. And we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1:1 1, 1 and verse 14. We see that Thomas will declare that Jesus is God, according to John 20, verse 28. Some have even questioned whether Jesus is omnipresent, and the the resounding answer is yes, he's fully God and fully man. Only Satan would make a statement that would challenge the deity and authoritative power of Jesus Christ. Go back and reread Revelation 5. You'll see that Jesus is presiding over all the affairs of the earth. And we're reminded that he even knows the hearts of every man, according to John 2, 23-25. And then we have Colossians 1, 15-20. Let's read that. It says that he, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Now, let me pause there for a moment. That's a powerful term because the firstborn was the inheritor of the estate. So, he was before Adam. He is the rightful heir of all of the earth, and dominion belongs to him. That's a powerful statement. For by him, this is verse 16... For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There is no doubt who this is referring to. This is referring to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and, and the, we just have so much more to cover. <laughs> We're just scratching the surface. We haven't even talked about all the prophecies yet. We haven't talked about the timeline that was given in Micah and Daniel of the coming Messiah. All of the evidence points to who Jesus Christ is, that he is the anointed one, that he is the one whose title means God saves, that God has fulfilled his promise to bring about all things under Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he would reign on high, that he could restore things. And ultimately, those who serve him, who take up their cross to follow him, will have life eternal with him in worship to God the Father through, for all eternity in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. It is an exciting study. And I hope that you've been encouraged just by what we've covered here today. Tune in next week. We'll continue our study of who is Jesus. God bless you, my friends. If you are looking for a fellowship, check us out at calvaryfountain.com. This is this Engage in Truth broadcast is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday. We'd love to see you there. Again, the the website is calvaryfountain.com. If you're looking for a fellowship, you want to get connected with people throughout the week, then look no further. We'd love to have you at Calvary Fellowship, Fountain Valley. God bless you, my friends.